You're listening to EHA Unplugged, Episode 9, Multiple Myeloma, MM. Welcome back to the ninth episode of EHA Unplugged. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in hematology talking freely about highlights in their field of expertise. Today's podcast speaker is transplant expert, Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours. Hello, my name is Sean McCann. I'm an emeritus professor of hematology at St. James's Hospital in Dublin and Trinity College, Dublin, in Ireland. This podcast is about the disease called multiple myeloma, and I'm making it for the European Hematology Association. Now, multiple myeloma is, as probably you all know, a malignant proliferation of plasma cells in the bone marrow, usually, but not always, associated with a monoclonal protein in the serum and in the urine. The disease has been around for quite a long time and was first diagnosed in the middle of the 19th century. In spite of that, it's only fairly recently that we've made major inroads into the treatment of patients with this disease. And in some instances, this this disease may be considered as a chronic illness rather than a devastating malignant disease. I want to say at the outset that this hematological malignancy, multiple myeloma, in the treatment of these patients, the general medical management is just as important as the chemotherapy. And this should be undertaken very enthusiastically. Just prescribing uh, um, chemotherapy for a patient with myeloma is not enough. You have to take care of all of the other medical problems if you're looking for a good outcome. Now, from the diagnostic point of view, MM, as we'll call it, multiple myeloma, is characterized by 10% plasma cells in the bone marrow and one or more signs of what we call end organ failure. This is called CRAB, is the acronym, and it stands for hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, and bone disease. So CRAB, in my view, not a very nice acronym, but it's used in many of the papers written about MM at the moment. Now, the the contentious areas in multiple myeloma or MM are what are the precursor, or are there any precursor illnesses that may be picked up? And the disease MGUS, M-G-U-S, again, not a very nice acronym, for monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or so-called smoldering myeloma, are two areas in which the uh, therapeutic intervention is, to say the least, controversial. The presence of both MGUS and SMM, as they're called, certainly increases in the aging population. So can we, or is there any way we can try to predict the progression of these diseases into florid multiple myeloma? Well, if you have a lot of plasma cells, over 60% in the bone marrow, if you have a serum light chain ratio 
an abnormal serum light chain rate. And I'll come back to that again because it's a controversial area. But if it's over 100-fold, and if you have one or more bone lesions on MRI or a PET CT, then there's a very high chance, probably 80%, that within two years or so, you will progress to florid myeloma, which will require therapy. As I said, early intervention is somewhat controversial at the moment. Like other malignancies, cytogenetic analysis has become much more popular in the last five to 10 years. And deletions of 17P and the translocation of 414 are the most in, informative cytogenetic abnormalities. If you are inclined to treat smoldering myeloma or MGUS, then this should be done in the context, if possible, of a clinical trial, as we are still not sure whether this type of intervention is warranted or not. Now, as in other hematological malignancies, a prognostic score has been developed, which will try to help the clinicians to decide when to intervene with the therapy. This so-called ISS, or International scoring system has been recently revised and it depends upon the serum albumin level, the beta-2 microglobulin level, the lactic dehydrogenase LDH, and high-risk cytogenetic abnormality is detected by FISH, F-I-S-H, as I said, deletion 17P and translocations of 414. Translocations of 1416 have also been added so if we take the RISS classification, stage one is a beta-2 microglobulin level of less than 3.5 milligrams per liter and an albumin of less than 3 grams per deciliter, normal LDH, and standard risk cytogenetics. Stage two as a beta, oh, sorry, I should say stage three, has a beta-2 microglobulin level of greater than 5.5 milligrams per liter. And stage two is all the others. I'm not sure how very useful uh, that is, but a lot of people use it. Now, having diagnosed a patient with multiple myeloma, the question is, how should we manage a therapy or therapeutic intervention? Well, until very recently, the standard treatment was melphalan and corticosteroids. And again, this was palliative care, gave, certainly gave symptomatic relief to patients, but death in the majority of patients occurred within three years from progressive disease. With the introduction of thalidomide, the therapeutic landscape has completely changed. Now, as you, as you may know, thalidomide was originally developed for the treatment of nausea or pregnancy, but unfortunately was associated with a lot of physical abnormalities, which are called phobomelia, and the drug was subsequently removed from the market. However, as well as being an anti-nausea agent, it is also anti-angiogenic, and it's the precise mode of action in myeloma, I'd have to say, is as yet unclear. Now, we have other drugs um, such as bortezomib, 
which is a protease inhibitor, and then alinamide, a second generation, so-called imid or immunomodulatory agent, and also pomalidomide and carfilzomib, which are monoclonal antibodies. And again, as in other diseases, not terribly effective on their own, but may be effective in combination with other drugs. Now, multiple myeloma is one of the diseases where the use, or I should say malignant diseases in hematology, where the use of autologous hematopoietic cell transplant is indicated. We'll refer to that as ACTH. And this can be done once or twice. In North America, a double AC, AHCT, is commonly carried out in younger, younger fit patients, although in Europe, a lot of uh, investigators still rely on a single AHCD after chemotherapy. Cellular therapy with CAR T cells is currently being investigated, and we'll mention their role uh, in a few minutes. The other recently developed agents are the so-called breakpoint inhibitors, and as yet, although they have uses in some diseases, such as Hodgkin's disease, they have yet not been proven to be beneficial in the treatment of multiple myeloma. Now, one of the indications for aggressive and quick intervention is the development of spinal cord compression. And if there is, or if there are signs of spinal cord compression in a patient with myeloma, then local radiotherapy or surgical decompression may be required very quickly. So let's have a look at the so-called principles of treatment. First of all, a complete assessment of the status of myeloma. And again, I would assess it's important to look at the blood film, which may contain marked rouleau formation and sometimes even circulating plasma cells. MRI should be carried out, but if not available, then plain radiographs of the humerus and pelvis and humeri and a CT of the spine should be undertaken. It's very important to assess the patients for evidence of comorbidity. In other words, other diseases, lung disease, chronic obstructive airway disease, heart disease, hypertension, etc. as a majority of these patients are elderly. Now, one of the major complaints of patients at diagnosis is bone pain. So treatment of bone pain is extremely important, and this may require narcotic analgesia in the short term. Treatment of pain allows the patient to mobilize rapidly, and this, of course, will help with the treatment of hypercalcemia, which can cause severe renal impairment. Adequate hydration intravenously is often required, and this again may help in the reduction of hypercalcemia and normalization of renal function. After all these have been done, renal function should be reassessed. Now, as I said earlier on, infection is common in these patients, particularly respiratory tract infections associated with the profound hypogammaglobulinemia, which is present in spite of the monoclonal protein. In patients with severe or recurrent infections, then IV 
gametophilin should be considered. In some institutions, this can be given subcutaneously and self-administration is also a consideration. And I should expect in patients with hypogammaglobulinemia, chest infections with Haemophilus influenzae and pneumococcus are still the most important. If possible, try to stratify patients according to the RISS criteria. And remember that the age and comorbidity are very important when choosing therapy. So if we take younger patients, which are unfortunately still the minority, patients who are deemed to be high risk, according to the RISS, and deemed fit, in other words, without much in the way of comorbidity, are considered as candidates for AHCT or autologous hematopoietic cell transplant. They should be treated initially with dexamethasone, a protease inhibitor of your choice, and an imid. And as I said, this should be followed by a single, or if well tolerated, a second AHCT. If a second AHCT is contemplated, then it should be carried out within three months of the first AHCT. Conditioning for AHCT is high-dose melphalan at 200 milligrams per meter squared. Now, following this sort of therapy, the question is, should maintenance therapy be undertaken? And as yet, this is still a matter of some controversy. Lenalidomide has been given by some investigators for periods of one to one and a half years. But again, if you want to go down this road, then I suggest that if a clinical trial is available to you, it should be patient should be entered. How do you assess the response to treatment? Well, it's important to say that the more complete the response to treatment, the better the final outcome. So the first thing you should assess is clinical improvement, remembering the words of Osler and, of course, him long before him, Maimonides, that the good physician treats the disease and the great physician treats the patient with the disease. So, as I said, without laboring it too much, the overall management of the medical conditions of these patients is extremely important. Now, the concept of MRD, or so-called minimal residual disease, or measurable residual disease, is by a lot of investigators now felt to be very important in assessing the response of patients to treatment. In other words, is a patient, is a patient in complete remission or not? Now, as well as trying to measure so-called MRD, the serum light chain ratio is used by some investigators. The serum light chain ratio is a controversial uh, measurement and facts analysis using at least four color flow cytometry plus a plasma cell proliferative index has a sensitivity of 10 to the power of minus four. So depending on where you're working and the laboratory in which you're using, then the serum light chain ratio or four-color flow cytometry should be used in the, assess in the assessment of MRD. If the patients, and many patients, are non-fit, i.e. elderly with significant comorbidities, then there are variable treatments. Daratumumab, lenidomide, and dexamethasone. Daratumumab, bortezomib, melphonprednisone, 
bortezomib, lenalidomide and dexamethasone, bortezomib, metalphone and prednisone, or lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So there are many different um, varieties of treatment. Um, you should use the one which, which you are more comfortable with in terms of treating as many patients as possible. Now, I mentioned the monoclonal antibodies, daratumumab, against the CD38 and also elotuzumab. These have been used, but again, as in other hematological malignancies, are best used in combination chemotherapy and really have minimal effect if used on their own. Do we ever consider allogeneic HCT? Well, the history of allogeneic HCT, which has been around for more than 30 years now, has not been very good. In younger, relapsed, fairly fit patients who have a matched sibling donor, it may be undertaken. But as I say, the morbidity and mortality rates are very high with this condition. But in younger patients, may be deemed to be appropriate if they have relapsed following the sort of chemotherapy and AHCT we mentioned already. Now, in the newer age, what is the role of cellular or so-called CAR T-cell therapy? Well, for relapsed myeloma or refractory myeloma, um, this sort of therapy can be undertaken, but again, it should be in the context of a clinical trial. CAR T cells are engineered to be active in this case against the B cell maturation antigen or BCMA, which is highly specific and expressed on plasma cells and activated B cells. I'd have to say that the preliminary results of clinical trials have been very promising with this form of therapy shown to be very effective. But the follow-up is still relatively short and we're all looking for treatments which will have either a long-term disease-free survival for the patients or even a cure. So in spite of new treatments, although symptomatic relief and complete remission may be maintained in many patients, most patients, unfortunately, will relapse at some stage, hopefully 10 to 15 years after diagnosis, and this will eventually lead to their death. So we're still looking for good treatments which will turn this malignant disease into a curable entity. I'm now going to say a couple of words about a real live patient in whom I was involved in the management of his multiple myeloma. He was a 50-year-old farmer who was out herding his sheep, as farmers tend to do, and he stumbled and fell. And after that, he complained of severe rib pain. And his wife, as is common, insisted that he should see his family doctor the next day. Many men, as we all know, are reluctant to see doctors, although women are usually much more compliant in this area. Anyway, his wife told the doctor that, in fact, he'd had this rib pain and back pain for many months and not just recently and that he had a lack of energy and often fell asleep in the evening after his evening meal while watching television. 
when the doctor examined him, he knew this patient quite well over the years. He felt that he was a little bit shorter than he had remembered him, although he had no really good measurement of his height, and he thought he looked pale. He arranged immediately for radiographs of the farmer, but again, as is common, the farmer felt he was too busy to attend hospital and put off the investigations. However, a few weeks later, he complained of a cough and again, severe rib pain, shortness of breath and nausea. Again, his wife insisted he be brought to the doctor who immediately referred him to the local A&E. On listening to history, he, the, the, the farmer admitted that he had a number of chest infections in the last six months, which had required antibiotic therapy. He smoked 20 cigarettes per day, and he was noted to have a marked dorsal kyphosis and evidence of pneumonia, as we'd expect. Carrying out blood tests in the hospital, he was found to be anemic with a hemoglobin of 85 grams per liter, and his blood film showed marked rouleau formation. Biochemical evidence revealed an increased serum albumin, sorry, decreased serum albumin, hypercalcemia, an elevated total protein, and an increased serum creatinine. Immunoglobulin levels showed a raised IgG and reduced IgA and IgM, and serum electrophoresis revealed a monoclonal band, and immunofixation revealed that band to be IgG kappa. A bone marrow aspirin and, and, and um, biopsy were undertaken, and the aspirin revealed 20% plasma cells, many with abnormal morphology. His beta-2 microglobulin level was raised, and a cytogenetic ana analysis carried out revealed translocation 414. He was admitted to hospital, given adequate analgesia so he could be mobilized, rehydrated, given bisphosphonates and dexamethasone to counteract his hypercalcemia. His clinical condition improved dramatically. He was mobile and free of pain. He was treated with dexamethasone, bortezomib, and lenalidomide, followed by a single autologous cell transplant. He responded very well to this with no significant morbidity. On follow-up at one to two years, he was very well. He had no pain, was fully mobilized. He had stopped smoking. And incidentally, his cow, Lydia, had won a prize at the local agricultural show. So to recap on that, medical management, bone pain relief, treatment of hypercalcemia, and specific treatment of the myeloma are all of extreme importance. Thank you. That was Professor Sean McCann for Episode 9 of EHA Unplugged. For other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, if you are passionate about hematology yourself, why not contact us and start your own podcast episode? You can reach us via education at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.